listening to the Leadership Woman podcast with me, Jill Savile. And today, my guest is Neil Cocker, Director and Senior Partner of Tomorrow Street, and I'll leave it to him to explain what exactly that is. Uh, I've known Neil for quite a few years now uh, in Luxembourg. Uh, we met um, before, in fact, we were on the British Chamber Council, but we were on the Council together. So welcome, Neil. Thanks, Jill. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, we've just been chatting about noise and maybe dogs barking and this type of other, but I'm sure it'll be all fine. Yeah, that's an occupational hazard, having two dogs when, uh, when we're working, uh, you know, working from home with so many Zoom calls. So do you want to uh, just position Tomorrow Street? Yeah, so, so my, um, my, my career background, well, where, where I am at the moment, uh, I'm working with Tomorrow Street, which is a joint venture between Vodafone and Technoport, which is Luxembourg's national startup incubator. And what we do is we, we have a couple of you know, big ambitious goals. One is we, we aim to find and nurture scale-ups, so startups that have reached a rather advanced stage of their development into the, the strategic suppliers of the future for, for Vodafone. So it's about finding the next big stars really in, in the tech world. Uh, what we do for, for Luxembourg is that we bring those companies to Luxembourg and they set up a small team on the ground in Luxembourg uh, and, we, and we help them embed. And the idea is that we, you know, we grow them into the local tech ecosystem as well. And so we do those two things really. We grow them at Vodafone and we grow them into Luxembourg. So that's where you are now. And for me, actually, it's probably more interesting to hear about <laughs> where you started and how you got to where you are now. So I believe you were born in Scotland. So let's go to there. Yes, Jill. So, um, so born in, in Scotland in the 70s. So my, my family home uh, is a, a refinery town on the east coast called Grangemouth, which is, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, has, has quite a history. It's a bit of a radical place. You know, it was a, one of those old industrial ports. And my, my father, when I was born, he was... Uh, He'd, well, he'd been working for part of his life uh, in that environment uh, as an industrial plumber, but he decided he wanted something different. So he was going back to night school, back to university, and he, he became a teacher um, just around, you know, the early days when, when, I was a, when I was a toddler, really. And then my life, my early life, I think, was defined by, yeah, how, how, how he grew his career and we moved around, around Scotland. And... He worked in a quite unusual part of the educational system, which uh, was known as List D, and this was this was a, a very ambitious concept that of taking boys um, from urban areas with social difficulties and educating them in, in rural areas. You know, and, and what what that meant usually was a castle. So an old castle had been, you know, had. Maybe the family had died out, the family line had died out, and the castle had passed to the church or had passed to the state. And they basically refurbished those castles and they turned them into schools. So it's a, a strange concept looking back, a kind of Harry Potter type thing almost, where you, you took some boys who you know had 
quite unfortunate circumstances and you took them out of their environment and you and put them into this uh, you know, incredible old spooky castles uh, and you know tried to give them a different life and a different environment and what was unusual probably about my childhood was that we actually lived in uh, in the grounds of one castle and we, we lived in the wing of another castle which was you know you associate uh, living in a castle with being, you know, super wealthy and being aristocratic, but this was this was quite the opposite. But um, but I think what when I look back, I think that really had gave me gave me two things because uh, it gave me an appreciation. I came from uh, a loving, stable family, and I was always interacting with boys who didn't come, you know, weren't as lucky as me from from that background. Um, and secondly, I think it just had a sort of atomic impact on my imagination as a kid because me and my brother, we were, you know, we were playing, we were running around these old Victorian ruins, you know, old follies and curling ponds and spooky woods and forests. And uh, yeah, so that was, that was, uh, that was the early part of my childhood. Atomic. I love that word. Atomic impact on your imagination. And we're going to talk a bit later on about you, you as an author. Uh, just, just staying here though, your father, to, to retrain in the 70s, um, he must have been quite keen on personal development, personal growth, making the best of yourself. Or am I interpreting that wrongly? No, I, th I think you're, you're right, John. I think it was part of that post-war social contract in the UK I think so my dad actually his his life changing moment was he did national service uh, and he was he got into judo when he was a teenager and, and became a black belt he was very good at judo and when he signed up for national service they decided to put him in the military police uh, and and somewhat crazily he ended up in Berlin on the Berlin Wall so he he saw he saw basically the Berlin Wall go up. He was there 61, 62. Uh, I think that was quite life-changing for him. You know, someone who'd left school at 15 and gone into an industrial apprenticeship, as was the norm for, for boys at that time. So, so I think, you know, post-war, those opportunities started to really open up for, you know, people from all backgrounds in the UK. Uh, and, and, you know, he was... He was very much into embracing those opportunities and also, you know, teaching me and my brother as well to embrace those opportunities as, as my parents both did. Mm. Uh, so you mentioned parents there. Uh, where was your mum in all of this? Yeah, my mum's always been such a, you know, fantastic uh, supporter and uh, extremely caring person. So, um, you know, together as a unit, they're, they're, very strong. They're still going strong, very robust. My dad's what, 80, coming up for 83 uh, and still, you know, up, up the local pub a couple of times a week. And, you know, has, they have a great network, network of friends as well. So they are, both of them, I think, are real role models for, you know, living life to the fullest and, and embracing the positive things in life. Yes. And I know that when we were having the, the chat before this, she was saying, you used to think you had quite a boring childhood. And then when you realised not everybody lived in castles, uh, and, uh, looking back, it was, it was, it sparked this atomic, it had an atomic impact on your imagination, you said. So 
moving then into university that that age yeah. of life what happened then so i think my you know, my, my i was surrounded by books all my childhood uh, and i was naturally drawn towards english and history and those humanities subjects uh, so so i went went off to study english at aberdeen university and you know on, on reflection perhaps graduating in the mid 90s with a humanities degree was possibly the worst time in history to graduate with a humanities degree because the world was changing so much and you know if you think about the the internet was just really um a few years away from from its tipping point back then um and i think you know university experience was terrific it's it widens horizons so much but I think, you know, when I look back, did it prepare me for, for the world that was coming? Um, I don't think so. Uh, I think that was one of those, I think it's common in history, right? History works in cycles. And I think we're going through one of those huge changes now, right? Um, mm. But the, the last one was arguably when, you know, late 90s into early noughties, when, when our economy started to, to really change to uh, a knowledge economy in, in an exponential way. Mm-hmm. So the worst time ever to get a humanities degree. <laughs> yeah, because you know I remember just being told for years, oh, you know, you, you, you know, this is a useless degree, and that, that was a common narrative, I think, in, in workplaces, um, big company workplaces in the nineties and into the into the early noughties. Yeah. So, th- so that's what you were told. Maybe we can come back to that at the end to see if mm, well, was that true in fact. So. Um, you left with a humanities degree, and, and where did you? What What was your experience of work then? Yeah, well, I, I made, you know, looking back, a quite a bold decision. So I saw an advert in the university newsletter to teach English in Lithuania. Uh, no experience necessary in big bold capital letters, which was just as well, <laughs> and uh, you know, so so that summer, at the end of that summer, I. I I just departed off to Lithuania, which was only, you know, the Soviet Union had broken up three years previously. Uh, And landing there, I was immediately surrounded by this very alien world. Uh, I've I've been to Lithuania recently, two years ago, and it's, you know, it's now it's just such a fantastic place. It's just, you know, feels like anywhere else in Europe, really. But in those days, you know, you were going into a world that was effectively still the Soviet Union. And... uh, what, what was immediately very challenging was, you know, these were the pre-internet days, so connectivity and staying in touch with friends and family was, was really difficult, right? You had to, you were writing letters, you um, could take incoming phone calls, but to make an outgoing phone call, you had to go to the post office. Oh, goodness. So, so there were all these, uh, all these strange aspects, uh, and, and I was thrown into this world where, in a town of 30,000, there were there were four foreigners and I was one of them. So you were kind of like a rock star and everybody knew everything about your life. Uh, so, so that was a you know very a very challenging year because I didn't know anything about teaching. I was learning on the hoof. Yes. Uh, and, and also, you know, the we we the two respective cultures, we didn't really know anything about each other. So we were we were learning all, all the time. And so there were people wandering around Lithuania with a Scottish accent then? Yeah, you wonder, right? Because there were about 
25 teachers in this programme and uh, about half of them were Scots. Uh, the, the reason why is far too long to explain on, the, on this pod, <laughs> podcast. But, uh, but yeah, so we, we had a little community where we, we all kind of stuck together and uh, there were quite a few Americans in the country as well. So uh, we, we had a little English language community that, that oh. helped us all helped us all get through the year and we would swap books and magazines and, and things like that. So I can hear very challenging and, and as you're talking about connectivity, uh, that now wherever we travel, it's unusual not, not to have internet, to be able to contact our family whenever we want. So uh, that might be a novel idea to some of the people listening to this podcast. So you... So what happened after Lithuania then? You said it was a challenging year. Where did you go to? Yes, yeah, so I spent probably two or three years. Uh, I, um, I did teacher training, so I pursued teaching uh, and then decided that it wasn't really for me. Um, I travelled a bit. I, I did a couple of temp jobs. So I was, to be honest, drifting a little, looking to find my place. You know, I had the, uh, I think that I was as I mentioned, very interested in, you know, English language, history, those kind of topics. But I think the world was changing fast. And, you know, if you'd done a business degree or if you had an accountancy degree or a computer studies degree, you were well-placed at that time in the 90s to, to slip into the world of work. But then um, just, just by chance, really, I, uh, I got an opportunity for Diageo, which is a big drinks company, uh, and it was in an amazing department, which was called Brand Change. Uh, and essentially what, what we did there was we, um, it was called Innovation and Renovation. That was one way of looking at it. So you take big brands such as Johnny Walker, Gordon's Gin, Smirnoff Vodka. Uh, and we were like the project team that would manage through the vision of the marketing team. So you imagine they wanted to create a new product or, or a product extension. And we would work with the, the label printers, the glass providers, the bottling plants, and we would put it all together and get those products on the shelves. So that was my first, I think, it was the first spark really that, that said to me, wow, this is, uh, this is really, this really feels like a really interesting work because you're, you've got all those kind of raw materials. If you take whiskey, it's a really interesting example. You know, you go back to the grain, really, and, and the water uh, and the, the ideas and the concept and the brand name is maybe linked to a small town or a village or something. Uh, and you have to build an end product going through quite a complex supply chain. Uh, you know, in, in some cases, the whiskey has to mature for, you know, 16 years, 18 years. So you, you think there's a really long lead time to, to create a product like that. And I was really drawn in. It was the first link for me with, with what I loved, which was stories, really. And, uh, you know, in that world, I used to talk to so many colleagues who were older than me, and they all had these amazing stories about the industry and how it had grown over the years. Uh, and that was the spark, I think. That's, that's what kind of drew me in. And I started to get interested in, in supply chain management and product management and how things work and how things end up uh, you know, on, on, a, on a supermarket shelf, what happens afterwards? How do you, you know, recycle that product? You know, everything end to end, it, it started to really fascinate me. Which, of course, is very topical at, at the moment with 
companies trying to go more green and this end-to-end, -end, this, uh, this cycle. And so you talk there about words still, language coming into storytelling. Um, how, at what point did you start to write or were you always sitting writing something? Uh, yeah, I, uh, yes, from, you know, probably when I was a kid, you know, I was always writing stories and, and as a teenager experimenting, you know, when I was a nerdy Lord of the Rings science fiction fan, writing, writing stories along those lines. And then I started to write seriously, write fiction seriously, probably around age 19. Uh, and I think it's, a, though I like anything in life, it's trial and error. You start out, you're not very good. You, you get, you know, start to talk to other people, other writers, share your work, and gradually you improve and, and, and things change. And then ultimately, what changed things for me there was in about 20 years ago now, 2001, I won a big short story prize in the UK. So this was at the time that actually the biggest short story prize in the UK. So this felt like, you know, wow, okay, validation. I've been doing this for about 10 years and, and now here is, you know, a pathway to success. So at that stage, I'd kind of developed two lives almost. So I had the day job getting increasingly fascinated in supply chain management, how it all works. Uh, and then I had the evening job really where I would come home and I would, you know, flip open my laptop uh, and start working on, on writing projects. So you had success. Um, you said it was the largest short story prize in the UK at that time, 2001. Um, I've got a word here, hooligans. Was there a story around hooligans? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, we talked last time. So, <laughs> yeah, this this was this was how I I guess we we'll talk a bit a bit about it later. But storytelling has become so important in the world of business, hmm. and it was something that I, I was naturally drawn to at the beginning of my career. So I was. So actually with Diageo, I moved to Amsterdam. I was based in Amsterdam for seven years and I uh, was managing a portfolio of about 350 different products, whiskies, white spirits, everything really. Uh, and this was the, in the days before systems were really that sophisticated for managing supply and demand. So it was quite daunting to, to manage such a huge portfolio in, in a largely manual way. Uh, then I hit upon a, a metaphor which helped me and my colleagues manage it well, which was uh, hooligans. So, so those 350 products, I, I visualized it as a football crowd. And really, like any football crowd, most of the football crowd is well behaved. But there's a small number of troublemakers who, who are not well behaved. And if, if you can't control them, then the perception is that the whole crowd is out of control. So we, we started to have a weekly meeting and we would talk about who are the hooligans and imagine ourselves almost as a special police force uh, unit who had been assigned to, to to monitor and track these hooligans and this became uh, at first just a fun metaphor but it became a quite powerful way i think to to think about how we categorized and segmented our portfolio uh, and, and and how we managed ultimately and ensured that the crowd so to speak uh, remained stable yeah, 
yes. <laughs> <laughs> if you can manage the hooligans, you can manage everything else. So yeah, a powerful, a powerful metaphor that would I imagine motivate the team to it would certainly motivate me to come and think, okay, managing the hooligan. So how did you, you were in Amsterdam, then where did you go? Yeah, so I spent, um, I spent seven years in total in Amsterdam, which was, which was amazing. Uh, I'd, I'd been working in, in, for the drinks company in Scotland for about three years and, and just personal circumstances, I was ready for a change in life and an opportunity came up in Amsterdam, which was just such an amazing move. It's such a fantastic city. So I was really happy living and working in Amsterdam. And uh, after a couple of years there, I, I met my wife, which was probably just as well because you know <laughs> Amsterdam's quite a party city. So I think it was just as well that um, I, I settled down after a couple of years in Amsterdam. Um, so, so I met my wife and you know we, we started to plan a life together as you do. And uh, opportunity came up to go and work for the company in Singapore. So I spent a few months in Singapore going back and forward between Amsterdam, Singapore, and that was largely to do with the growth of, of Johnny Walker in China, which was just booming and exploding at the time. Uh, and then my wife who works for the European institutions, so she, um, she passed the exam and she got a job opportunity in Luxembourg. Uh -huh. So that was, that was the moment of change where, uh, there was an opportunity for me to, to do some part-time work. I was offered, you know, maybe you can come to the Brussels office, you know, a couple of times a week, shuttle back and forward. But I think I realized, okay, it's time for, it's time for a fresh start. After 10 years with the company and in the industry, maybe it's time just to take that bold step and to jump into something new. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that, that was off to, off to Luxembourg. So what did you jump into then? Yeah, it was it was interesting because I'd, I'd worked in new countries before, but in a way you, you go into a new country then with a kind of infrastructure around you. You know, there's a job, there's people you know through work, there's support mechanisms of various types. And in this instance, uh, I didn't have any of that. So I so came into Luxembourg, didn't know anyone, didn't speak French or German, uh, you know, didn't have a job. So at first, you know, it, it was quite daunting. It was quite liberate, liberating at first. So I took a few months off just to write, work on work on a writing project I had and, and to get to know the lay of the land. Uh, but I think, you know, for as with many, many spouses who come to Luxembourg, it's often a journey of, you know, discovery. You have to pivot a little bit because, you know, for me, working in that supply chain management, big drinks industry, there wasn't a natural place to go, really. And at the time, anyway, we're talking 12 years ago, I spoke to a couple of recruitment consultants who said, well, you know, we, we focus on financial services. I'm not really sure where to place you. Oh. But then, as, a, as chance would have it, I think in Luxembourg, it's very important to have a, have a personal network and just to get to know people and uh, and it was just really a chance encounter with a neighbor who uh, we had an English couple who were neighbors and she worked for Vodafone. So we got talking and realized that my experience was, was quite relevant. 
And then I started, you know, that, that process to apply for, for a couple of jobs at Vodafone. So that's interesting that your experience was relevant. Going back to your humanities degree, how, how much of that and languages and storytelling would you think you brought to Vodafone? Yeah, that's a really good question because my first couple of months at Vodafone, I was a bit worried. Uh, I started in, in a supplier governance role, kind of supplier management. Uh, and, and I was a bit daunted because it felt like everyone around me had really deep experience in telecommunications or engineering. You know, they, they really knew the industry inside out, whereas I, here was me, you know, this guy who'd worked in whiskey for 10 years. <laughs> Uh, jumping from arguably one of the world's most ancient industries into one of the world's most modern. Oh. So I was I was pretty daunted at first, but then I, I gradually realised that my skill set was quite unusual and quite unique. And something happened probably around that time where storytelling just began to become extremely important in business. And I think it's that can be traced as well to the rise of the smartphone. Because if you think about now, when I started out at work, you went to a physical office, you had your desktop computer, that was the screen you worked on all day, and then you went home and really you couldn't do much work outside of the office, right? Fast forward to 2011 when I started at Vodafone, you know, and we had, we had smartphones, we had laptops that you took home with you, uh, you know, Text messages were, you know, increasingly prevalent, of course. Uh, so, so suddenly all these new platforms and channels of communication start to pop up. Uh, and I think what happened, what's happened increasingly over the last 10 years is we're, we're just deluged by information on all fronts and filtering that and making sense of that and understanding what's important and what's a priority is it's really quite challenging. Mm. So one of, one of the jobs I worked on first when I went to Vodafone was uh, what were known as supplier briefs. And this was when the C-level at Vodafone were due to meet a big supplier. They're, they're equivalent from a big supplier. We had to put together a, a kind of one or two page brief that summarized all the big important meaty topics of the day. So that was probably one, one area where I first started, you know, just to really get into the, the storytelling around business because you have to condense the, the first version of those documents were often seven or eight pages long and you have to try and work out what's important and talk to people and just go through that until you finally have just a really punchy summary that the CEO or CTO can go into a room can read in a taxi and go into a room and, and know what to talk about mm. so that was a really interesting exercise in condensing to use a, a whiskey metaphor distilling right you're you're taking all those raw ingredients and, and you're distilling it down into something that's powerful and valuable yeah so even in a tech industry you're using your knowledge your skill of language and one of the things that i remember about you when when we first met was how you did distill things into just just one page you know I knew that you would go away and you would come back with just something that we could all get around. So you said storytelling became big then 
in your business and you've also got this running in parallel at home so what happened next yeah so i uh i did uh, i did an mba shortly after joining vodafone because i realized that I was a bit nervous about my uh, my humanities degree again. I thought, well, it's time to maybe top up my qualification with something else. So that was a that was a, a really great journey to go on. It was, it was really tough though because I did it uh, I did it you know, part time, which is the wrong word to use. Double time is probably more appropriate because that was done at weekends, right? So I was working full time. Uh, and I did a distance learning MBA with the Open University, which was a you know, terrific experience overall. Uh, and I think that that nudged me into new directions. Uh, I started working as business manager for the local uh, CEO of the Vodafone procurement company. So I worked with two really impressive, influential people. Firstly, Detlef Schultz. He, he was the original founder of the VPC. And secondly, Ninian Wilson, who's, who's still... Uh, the CEO today and, and really learned a lot from those guys and the leadership team that were working around them. So I was in a kind of chief of staff role there. So you're involved in everything. You're, and, and I think what I learned from that is setting the strategy and, and sticking to it is a really important way just to connect all the dots. Because if you get everyone involved in building the strategy, everyone involved in, in implementing it, then this is the way to, to have a coherent story that wraps around everything you do. Absolutely. All leaders need a one, a one story. And in this world today where everybody's divided and there's so much information and different versions of things, um, companies need just one version, I think, as never before. So this, this is your... This is your skill coming to the fore. Um, how did how did you move into tomorrow street? Yeah, so I'd, I'd been doing those those chief of staff type roles probably for about three and a half four years in various guises. And as we were setting the the new strategy, there was one of the work streams was innovation focused. Uh, and yeah, and it felt like the the natural home for me, the natural next step. So. I jumped across to, to work in a small team of people who were involved in, in getting that off the ground. So I was using my writing skills. I wrote the business case to come up with the concept and we, we reached out to the local government um, just to explore, could we, could we do this together? You know, and that's what happened, right? We went through a very constructive, positive process of, of collaborating with Tengaport, with the Ministry of Economy, and putting together the, the concepts, putting some flesh on the bones. Uh, and yeah, and then we launched Tomorrow Street back in uh, four years ago, right? September 2017, we launched. That's brought us up more or less to date. How have you found, looking back over your life in this last half an hour, is there anything that's come up for you? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, one thing I remember when, when I was younger, I used to look at my CV and I would think, oh, you know, I have a really quite a messy CV. I'm not like those friends that I know who have a grand plan. They work to three-year plans and five-year plans. But actually, you know, in reflection, 
it, it's it's okay to have a messy CV. It's okay to have a circuitous journey in your career because I think it, it makes you more interesting. It's a sign that you're continually evolving. You are, you know, you're you're thinking on your feet. You're moving where the opportunities are, and I think it is given me texture. I would say when I when I look back over over the twenty years, uh, I knew people in my previous company who you know who have really worked. You know, they had they did a degree in a certain discipline, and they've steadily worked their way up up the pyramid. And here they are, twenty years later. You know, at the top of the pyramid. But I think that that career journey just simply wasn't for me I've always been attracted to you know doing different things and new experiences so as I'm quite happy when I look back on on that journey so yeah. far so I would say to any young people listening or anyone who's thinking about a career change it's I, I don't think it matters so much anymore I think and the world is changing so much I think arguably it's it works in your favor to show that you can adapt and change quickly yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I think is adaptability one of the top three skills or something I read for leaders today. Um, so, what else then? Don't worry about a messy CV. That's the first thing. Yeah, I think what's what's really important is just authenticity. It became a bit of a buzzword maybe around fifteen years ago in business, and and it really resonated with me at the time, and it still resonates with me. I think you have to. You have to stay true to who you are. You know, you can't let external pressures pull you out of shape and, and you know, you can't emulate others in terms of their personality and style too much. You know, you have to basically, you know, find who you are and who you are is often the same person outside work as it is inside work. I think we all, we all go through those moments in our careers and our lives where stress builds up and maybe you, you feel yourself pulled in a direction that doesn't quite feel right and I think what I've learned is just to stick to stick to who you are and that's quite a big thing I, I've worked with people uh, and particular nationalities I guess who feel that they have to have two different people they have a work them and they have a home them whereas actually we're just one human being aren't we yeah, and I think that's the, the way the world is going as well. You know, I see, uh, for example, today at Vodafone, it's a really nice thing that the company's doing. So today is what's called Spirit Day. So all of Vodafone's 100,000 employees have been given a day away from work for, uh, for self-development. So it can be for well-being, it can be self-development. If you want to go you know, take a walk in the hills, if you want to read some books uh, whatever you want to do it's your day so you know here i am i'm having a self-reflection with jill on the podcast so that's part of part of my day of of self-development and i think that's yeah i think so increasingly that idea of bringing in who you are generally and, and just locking it into your day-to-day -day life at work as well is, is central to the modern working experience yeah and when we think about connecting with people, it, only your true self can actually connect with somebody. Just a false image doesn't connect well, does it? So um, don't worry about a messy CV. Stay authentic and true to who you are. What's the third thing? Yeah, I think well, I've talked a lot about storytelling. So I think that's 
that would be one, you know, just for me, the power of storytelling and metaphor just increasingly important in the workplace. So that's a skill I think everyone should explore because it's something that will always stand you in good stead. But I think probably the final point to, to leave on would be linked to staying authentic. I think if you, in life, if you're doing something that you love and it's in a positive environment, everything else just follows. Everything else just flows through. And, and often at the times I have been uh, at a kind of career crossroads in my life, it's probably been one or the other. I realized I wasn't actually loving what I was doing. So if I give you an example of teaching, um, I could do it. I, I was quite good at it in some ways, but I just wasn't feeling the love for it. And that was really the reason that I stepped away from it. Uh, and you have to be in a positive environment as well, because, you know, sometimes it's, I think it's a quite a common thing. People switch companies or they move to a new job and they think it's the dream job, but then something about the, the culture, the environment, the fit, I would say, the fit is the key word, just isn't there for them. So that's another sign, I think, that you know, it's, it's not right in the long term. So I think those two things, doing what you love and being in a positive environment, and it's just after that, I think you have momentum. Mm. After that, you have momentum. Let's just finally finish on your books then. Where can people find your books? Yeah, so I'm, I'm on Amazon. So my my uh, journey as an author, I I was I had an agent for seven years. So I was in the commercial, the traditional system for, for seven years. And two novels we tried to sell, but came close on a few occasions, but to no avail. So but back in 2014, I decided, well, I'm going to follow the entrepreneurial route. Uh, and I self-published my first novel, which is called Amsterdam Rampant, which is uh, not for everyone. Let's say it's about a, a wild, uh, a wild <laughs> weekend in Amsterdam where a guy is juggling problems with work and life and family life. But I self-published that in 2014. And what's really interesting is you, you're doing this was very entrepreneurial because you have to learn the platform, the publication platform. You have to learn how to market. You have to learn how to sell your story. Uh, so it's, it was a really interesting journey with the first one, but it's uh, it's gone well. I think I've sold about 6,000 uh, units now wow. off of this. Uh, and now just earlier this year, I published the second novel, which is called The Devil's Chamber. And is a, a dark Edinburgh novel inspired a little bit by... Uh, some of the, the stories and books that I loved in, in my youth. So set in the 90s, at uh, a time I talked about really when a guy is working in a kind of dead-end job and the internet arrives and all kinds of things are happening, but he stumbles across uh, the truth to an old Scottish folk legend which rapidly escalates in some uh, oh. dark and uh, mysterious ways. So that's uh, that's also available on on Amazon just now as an ebook, and I'm just going through the process of learning how to create paperbacks and hardbacks using uh, using print-on-demand services. So it's uh, yeah, it's great. It's uh, something I, I do at the weekends because I don't have any headspace during the week to work on it. So it's uh, I usually dedicate uh, maybe four hours every weekend to work on my writing projects. To work on writing, my goodness. So um, thank you so much for giving up your time. Uh, I think your story is 
will be inspiring to many because it, as you say, it's not, it's not about just sticking to one path. It is about experiencing the world um, and having a messy CV and just making, making yourself more interesting, I imagine, to, to future employers. So thank you, Neil Cocker, for coming on the Leadership Woman podcast. Thanks, Jill. It's been a pleasure.